Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Thomas Frank, and this is the College Info Geek Podcast, a show aimed at helping you become a more effective student and maybe even just a more effective human being. Yeah, I feel a little bit sneaky here, but one thing I've realized since graduating college is that student is just a label for a time in your life where there's a lot more concentrated learning and, um, I personally like to keep learning, even though I'm not a student anymore. So a lot of the things I focus on with this podcast and with the things I learn myself are not only for people in an institutionalized learning bubble, I guess you could say. It's for anybody who wants to learn and be more effective. Uh, (laughs) You could probably tell that I'm going into a topic this week that really isn't focused on school and you would be right. So um, this week, I want to highlight a piece of writing that I did back in October. And I was pretty proud of it. Maybe it's utter rubbish, who knows. Um, But I liked it when it came out and only about 300 people read it. And I know why. Because this topic isn't something that is easily latched onto by people who don't tend to read the kind of things I read. It's a bit... um, and buried in psychology and rationality and there's not a whole lot of surface material to grab onto as somebody just looking for a quick tip or something like that but i do think that it is uh useful anyway so what i want to do with this podcast episode is read it to you attempt to explain it and hopefully offer you something that well maybe it's not a quick tip you can invest into your life right now and get an immediate result it will help you think better it will help you utilize your brain in more effective ways on the whole it's something that would form the foundation of a rational thought process that you would go through every single day so um hopefully you get something out of this if not don't worry because next week we'll be back to amazing interviews. I've got a couple recorded and I'll be putting them out next week and the week after because the people I recorded with have some cool things that are coming out concurrently. So I wanted to wait and help them um, make those launches as effective as possible. So I'm doing this episode this week and I hope you get some value out of it. Before I reveal the piece of writing, if you want to get my book on earning better grades, which does have lots of easily um, latched onto and applied tips on basically everything involved in the studying process, then you can go over to collegeinfogeek.com slash book and sign up for the newsletter, which you'll get every single week. You'll get that book for free, and I hope you really enjoy it. You can also find the show notes for this episode, which links to anything that I talked about, which will probably be the article and maybe some other things over at cigpodcast.com. Go over to the episode 57 link and um, you will be able to find all that stuff, including methods for subscribing to the show, writing review on iTunes, which definitely helps out and all sorts of other cool stuff. So that's all I got for the intro. I like to keep it short. And uh, the piece of writing that I'm going to read to you today is called How to Avoid Black and White Thinking, A Marriage of Heuristics and Precision. Now, if you don't know what some of those terms mean, don't worry. I'm going to, one, of, one of my goals with this episode is to try to explain a little more in depth what some of these terms are. I feel like I may have written from my own perspective with this article and um, went off of a lot of assumptions that I was able to make because I've been reading a lot of material on psychology and rationality and things of those of that nature for a while. So I'm going to try to kind of step back from that position and put myself in the position of somebody who maybe hasn't read all this weird stuff that Tom's read. So a heuristic is basically just a uh, a simplified pathway of thinking, maybe um, like a routine. 
that our brains go through. We have to deal with a lot of ideas and a lot of information in our lives. And heuristics are just kind of a simple way of dealing with them and coming up with an answer right away. So my goal with this article was to explore this phenomenon of thinking in terms of only two answers, a binary decision, and uh, finding the faulty logic within that. So let's just get started. So uh, as I've grown older, I've come to realize again and again that black and white thinking is one of the most unproductive and misleading ways of looking at the world. Uh, Quote, political party X is wrong. College is always a good investment. Notes must be taken on notebook paper, no computers. You've got to take a stance on this issue. Decide right now, people may tell you. But one of the many problems with this approach is the issue of precision. When asked for an opinion on a certain issue, how can you make that judgment without knowing the issue's details? Many issues are deceptively simple when presented in the form that humans understand intuitively, that is, when they're presented in language. Our ability to communicate using language is rooted deeply in the human brain's practice of creating heuristics, that is, assigning symbolic labels to complex concepts, thereby simplifying them. We do this naturally, so it's easy to slip into the practice of thinking that a concept's linguistic representation is an accurate gauge of its simplicity. With just a bit of critical thinking, though, you realize that this definitely is not the case. The human brain is, as far as we can observe, the most complex thing in the universe. Therefore, its intuitive understanding of the concepts that you think about isn't a good gauge of the actual concepts and all their true complexity in the real world, the uh, the territory to the map of your mind, as it were. Take, for instance, this crazy weird idea that I came up with. A triangular room made of pink jello expanding in cubic centimeters at a rate of one Fibonacci number per second in which Indiana Jones is doing battle with a talking hippo with lightsabers and jetpacks propelled by cold fusion. Don't worry if you didn't get all that. It's just an example. <laughs> Language, as we've established, is a fantastic tool for assigning simple labels to complex concepts so that they can be communicated between agents that have a similar understanding of those concepts, meaning... Uh, two people, or two agents, if you want to get imaginary and, and more abstract, but two people in the real world who understand two, you know, one concept. Similarly, they can communicate about that concept with more simple terms because they both have a core understanding with which to stand on. So I can actually represent this idea with a word such as floor glarp. And then I can ask a seemingly simple question. Do you believe in floor glarp? Now, You know that I just made that word up. You have a better intuitive understanding of all the individual concepts that I'm representing with Florgarp. So it's probably easy for you to see that this complex or the concept's complexity can't be accurately conveyed with that word. You know what a triangular room would look like. You know what pink jello is. You know what the concept of expansion is. And you can imagine it expanding in cubic centimeters at the rate of one Fibonacci number per second. And you know who Indiana Jones is. And... You can think about how scary a talking hippo with lightsabers and jetpacks would be. Um, But you don't. You've never heard of Florglarp before. You know, it's just something I made up. So you probably would have a hard time assigning this label to these concepts and intuitively thinking of that entire concept as one package nicely tied in a bow hole with that word to represent it. But most of the words you use in everyday life are words you've known for a long time. They're words that have also been made up, but they've been accepted into the lexicon, the general vocabulary of society. 
And as a result, you have a better intuitive understanding of these heuristical, simple, labely words than you do of the actual precise concepts they represent. It's the opposite problem. With Florglarp, I made up the word, but you had a better understanding of the individual concepts and in, in their complexity. With a lot of terms, you have the opposite problem. You understand the word, but maybe not the concepts. You maybe not have thought of them. For instance, even though I used the word triangular room in that example, your brain probably had an easy time representing the idea as a room in the shape of a tetrahedron. However, without further consideration, you probably did not intuitively think of the concept as, necess as a necessarily imperfect tetrahedron in which the edges never form true vertices due to electromagnetism. Um, and now that I'm reading this sentence, I think it was a bit of intellectual wankery, but I guess my point here is that, you know, due to the fact that atoms never touch because of the uh, electromagnetic fields around them, you would never actually have intersections of lines in a tetrahedron, which is a 3D triangle. Um, so your, your brain sort of like fudges away that detail and just thinks of a simple concept. Now, back to the article. With practice, it becomes easier to identify complex, nuanced concepts that are represented by overly simplistic labels. You get to the point where I can ask you something like, can a tetrahedron exist in our physical universe? And you immediately realize that the question can't be accurately answered until the concepts behind the question are more rigorously defined. Now, I like the way that artificial intelligence writer Eliezer Yudkowsky embodies this concept in his article on Occam's Razor, which basically postulates that the more complex an explanation it is, the more evidence you need just to find it in belief space. Occam's Razor, you might know, is a problem-solving principle that favors explanations that make this the fewest assumptions. You might have heard it as uh, phrased like this, the simplest explanation that fits the facts is likely the correct one. Now, Yudkowsky points out in his article that the science fiction writer Robert Heinlein replied that the simplest explanation is always, quote, the lady down the street is a witch. She did it, end quote. Now, I couldn't actually find any references online to verify that Heinlein actually said this, but it is a good illustration, so I'm going to keep it here. And as a side note, a lot of the things I find quoted online, generally, I don't find sources for, and I do tend to look into them. Um... And as Yoda said once, everything online is true and rightly sourced. So obviously, I'm just not looking hard enough. And if anybody can help me with that, I would love your assistance. <laughs> anyway, Highline's supposed reply is succinct in terms of human language. The lady down the street is a witch. She did it. Easy to think about in terms of English language. That's very simple. However, as I've just demonstrated, human language isn't actually a good measure of simplicity. So what could possibly be used as an accurate measure of simplicity, if not English or some other language? Well, as it turns out, the answer is right in front of your face. Well, actually, now it's in your ears. It was in front of your face when it was an article. Binary. The language that forms the foundation of every computer program is as simple as you can get. The binary alphabet has just two characters, zero and one, which represent the off and on states of an electrical switch, respectively. At the lowest level, computers always think in black and white. That's because that's the only possible way for them to think. Their alphabet only allows for one of two states to ever be expressed at any given time. These binary decisions are done at lightning quick speed in mind-boggling numbers, compiled into higher-level languages, run through lots of if-then statements, and given a very strong cup of tea, and then eventually come to re com uh, represent more complex data that's useful to you. But at the core, it's all just on or off. And here's how that's useful. If you can make an idea computable, 
then you can figure out the length of the shortest computer program that can express it. In fact, this is what the process of Solomonoff induction seeks to do. When you think about things in this way, it quickly becomes apparent that the lady down the street is a witch, she did it, is not the simplest explanation with the fewest assumptions. The word witch doesn't explain anything. A piece of data is evidence if and only if it excludes many possibilities. Data that permits anything is just useless noise. Which could come to mean anything. She could cause a hurricane. She could be a planet. She could be unicorn eating a planet. Who knows? We don't know what that word means because it's a catch-all term for things we don't understand. When a phenomenon happened that people didn't understand, they tended to point at some random poor lady and call her a witch and blame it on her. And then you hope that you can fix the problem by burning her or something. Luckily, we don't do this anymore, but that's what the term meant. I've explained this concept just to get you thinking about the actual complexity of ideas and how that relates to language and heuristics. I'm not suggesting that you try to do Solonov-Manov induction calculations on every decision you have to make or that you attempt to ditch heuristics entirely, and here's why. Heuristics and labels are often useful. They let us use our prior knowledge of the world to make quick, mostly accurate predictions about things, and in turn, we can take action and get on with our lives. When I wrote this, I was sitting in a coffee shop, and if I looked at the window, I could see a black car parked on the other side of the parking lot. When I was sitting there, I could quickly make the prediction that the car poses no real threat to me at that time. I could assign a 99.9% probability, in fact, that the car is not going to come barreling through the coffee shop wall and kill me. Luckily, I don't have to sit around trying to rigorously define the concepts of car, threat, coffee shop, wall, and anything else in order to come to that conclusion, because I have prior knowledge. The car is parked and no one's inside of it. Most cars don't move by themselves yet. And in my part of the world, people generally don't try to kill other people for no given reason. Even if they did, they probably wouldn't try to do it if the car or with a car if their target is inside a building. And uh, lastly, the brick wall of the coffee shop would probably stop the car anyway, since there isn't much room to gain a lot of speed in the parking lot. So these are called priors, uh, prior information that I knew already. And they give me useful heuristics, simple labels and, you know, fast modes of thinking with which to make a prediction in a split second, letting me get back to writing without fear of being crushed by a rogue car and collapsing a brick wall. Uh, consequently, I'm sitting in my room podcasting right now, and I'm still not afraid of a car barreling through the wall and killing me. I mean, I suppose it's possible. I think this apartment's uh, less brick, more wood. But I still think it's unlikely, so I'm not going to worry too much about it. However, it's important for me to realize that I'm relying on heuristics to make this prediction. I haven't considered every piece of evidence in detail, and as a result, I cannot assign a 100% probability to my prediction. Now, if I were to attempt a Bayesian probability calculation for it, and for you nerds out there, I think I'll just link to um, to a good article on Bayes' theorem. Uh, but to continue, if I were to attempt a Bayesian probability calculation for it, I'd use these heuristics as strongly predictive priors, but then I'd need to define them, consider cases where they might not be true, and adjust accordingly to get a more accurate prediction. What if the car is actually self-driving, I could think. Or what if I have an inaccurate mental model of the parking lot and there actually is enough space for a car to gain the velocity necessary to knock down a brick wall? And what if the person in the car is somebody that I somehow slighted and now they're insane and they really want to kill me? I don't know. I haven't really considered these possibilities. So, however improbable, you know, there is a possibility it could happen. Actually alone, the fact that the second law of thermodynamics is probabilistic in nature, um... 
this is also a bit of a complex term. Basically, there's something called entropy. And uh, at a subatomic level, entropy, uh, that is energy, dissipates. Uh, chaos increases more, you know, it spreads out. But that doesn't mean that it's a rule that this happens. It's just probabilistic. So, um, you know, energy could compact. It could it could become less complex and less chaotic. It just almost never happens. But the point is you can never be 100% certain of a prediction because of that. Still, I can be virtually certain that I'm in no danger of being killed by a car while I sit in the coffee shop. Even after defining the concepts more precisely and considering the evidence more closely, my heuristics still prove useful enough to bet my safety on. But here's the point of all this. Your heuristics are not always that useful. My beliefs about the car were rooted in my detailed knowledge of the surrounding area because I live around here. My extensive experiences with the types of people who live around here, they're typically not twisted metal characters, they're not trying to kill me, and my confidence in the fairly consistent nature of physics. But what happens when your beliefs are not as solidly grounded? And here's where we get back to the usefulness of thinking about the underlying assumptions we're making when we form beliefs. Since I mentioned Robert Heinlein earlier, let me use him once more as an example. Now, it's been speculated that Hanlon's razor, a term inspired by Occam's razor, originated from a short story he wrote called Logic of Empire. And here's the simplest wording of it. Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. This is one of my favorite sayings, actually. And as a concept, it has proved incredibly useful in keeping my personal relationships from deteriorating. When somebody does something that angers or hurts you, it's easy to attribute the action to malice, to them hating you for some reason. We almost do it automatically, and I think it's safe to assume that there's some useful evolutionary programming that we can attribute it, uh, that to. Because if, if something hurts me, it probably wants to eat, kill, hurt, take resources from me. Uh, and if something is nice to me, it's probably part of my group. Those are two very useful sort of rules to live by when you're living in like the savanna or something as a caveman and you're fighting tigers. Uh, in a natural environment, it's a black and white heuristic that's really, really useful in general. Uh, and acting upon its conclusions can often mean the difference between life and death. Now, unfortunately, this same heuristic that governs the conclusions you come to when a tiger springs out of a bush also governs what you think when your friends go to the movies and forget to invite me. You think, how dare they not invite me? They must hate me for some reason. I must have done something. Or maybe they just decided to hate me because they're stupid. I don't know. And in this case, you're brain presents you with a false dilemma. I thought my friends liked me, but they didn't invite me to the movies, you think. Now, this isn't a case of a tiger trying to eat you. Any number of non-malicious factors could have been involved in the result. Your friends were unorganized, maybe, and they didn't assign someone to do all the invitations. Or maybe you didn't happen to be around, and it was just a spontaneous event. Um, maybe somebody tried to call you, but your phone was dead or the cell phone tower lost the signal. So it didn't even reach your phone. Maybe some technological problem happened and maybe you weren't the only one not invited. It was just a, you know, group thing for the people who happened to be around. The list goes, uh, you know, list goes on any number of things could have happened. So here's the takeaway in all this heuristics and labels are useful, but they only get you so far. Their very nature encourages you to overly simplify and categorize concepts that may be much more nuanced and detailed than you initially realize. Therefore, when forming opinions and making decisions, it's a good idea to question your underlying assumptions and think about possible in-between states that exist on the spectrum between two initial positions that you are presented with. Get specific with the definitions of the concepts that support your opinions. Now, this doesn't mean that your initial position on an issue will always be overturned or invalidated after you've rigorously defined the concepts it depends on. Your position might remain the same, and that's cool. 
However, you might just find yourself changing your mind as well. Either way, this type of deliberate thinking is focused on forming accurate beliefs and will make you a wiser, more capable person. When you learn to marry heuristics and precise Solomonov-inspired thinking in an optimal way, you get the best of both worlds. So that was my uh, very, very complex article. And as you can see, it's very different from the normal things I write. But hopefully you found something useful out of it. Now, I'll try to explain kind of how I got to the point where I could write this article and get something useful out of the process of thinking through these things myself. So I think it was back in 2013 where I was on spring break, I want to say, and I was on Hacker News, which is Y Combinator's um, kind of Reddit style board for news that affects the techie startup world. And uh, there was a thread there where people were asking what was the most um, enjoyable or best fiction book that you read in the past year. And uh, there were a lot of books that I had never heard before, um, some that I had read before. And one of them was something called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. And I was like, what the heck is that? That's not a real Harry Potter title. Turns out it's a it's a fan fiction, which that always brings to mind lots of ridiculous um like evanescence inspired teen girl writings of Draco getting married to like, I don't know, Professor Trelawney or something. <laughs> but uh, actually methods rationality turned out to be one. It's, it's now done actually it just finished a few weeks ago, I think, or maybe two weeks ago. And it it's about the length of any three Harry Potter books put together. It's ridiculously long. Um, two, it's basically the attempt of a rationality and AI researcher to shoehorn an entire curriculum of, I guess, rationality instruction into an incredibly well-written, honestly, and planned out and thought out story set in the Harry Potter universe. And Harry attempts to uh, learn the nature of magic through the scientific method and through rationality. And he's a very different character than his, his canon character. And a lot of the other characters in the story are also very different which does help it sort of stand apart from the canon, but also build upon that established mythos, which I believe is uh, what makes it so great. I think it would be less impactful if it were set in its own universe, as much as it would be cool to have that set in its own universe. Um, but I read that and I, I was addicted to it. I, I read for days on end, used most of my spring break that year to, to get like trucked through about three fourths of the story. And honestly, it was one of the most life-changing fiction pieces that I've read ever because it got me thinking about rationality. It got me thinking about psychology. And honestly, it sparked an interest in greater acquisition of knowledge than I currently had at the time. Um, going through most of college, I was pretty much interested in my circle of major influence, right? I had my, my college tips blog, so I was interested in college tips and startup-y things and all the stuff associated with that. And then I was in a computer business major, so I was interested in programming and IT and business. And that was kind of what I surrounded myself with during my learning time. And I read this book, or I guess this fan fiction online. There's no real print book of it. But there are ebook versions. And it kind of unlocked this latent curiosity in science and history and psychology and all sorts of different topics. And now... Um, I have a bookshelf behind me filled with all sorts of different books on those topics. I'm going through, um, a book called discoverers, which is all about the history of science and on also just like the history of mankind's progression 
through discovering new things and inventing things. I'm going through dis- The Disappearing Spoon, a book about the periodic table. I'm learning lots about chemistry. I would have never been interested in these topics had I not gone through this book, uh, this stupid Harry Potter fi- fan fiction, as people call it. And now I have this more solid understanding of a lot of different areas. It's, you know, it's very basic. It's very elementary in a lot of areas, but it's certainly more thorough than I would have had if I would have just stuck to this narrow sliver of business and startup life and college tips that I was in before. And what I found is this more um, thorough education actually makes more connections in your brain and unlocks more modes of thinking. So it's very, very useful. Um, But one of the areas of inquiry this sort of sparked in me was around rationality and making decisions and heuristics and biases. And I, I picked up a copy of Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, which is a very tough book to get through. I must admit, I'm not even, I'm not even halfway through it yet. Every single page is like something you need to take a page of notes on almost. Um, and if you were to get into this area of, of information, I suppose of learning, Thinking fast and slow could be a place to start. I might start with a book like um, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. I've heard it's a bit easier to get through. And maybe once you've established a knowledge base from that, you can move up to thinking fast and slow. Or you could throw what I say to the wind and jump right into Kahneman's work and do whatever you want. I don't care. But I think that would be my recommended path if I was telling somebody who was just getting into it. Maybe start with that. Um and maybe to start with methods of rationality because it's a great story and will and I, I it really brought me in. It got me addicted, and I think that was necessary for sort of planting the seeds of interest and not snuffing them out with complexity and ridiculous scientific psychology studies and results presented of those. So uh, that was sort of the start, and I just went from there. Um, Gadkowski, the guy I mentioned in the article, he's an AI researcher, but he also wrote MOR. Um, he's also written a lot of articles on rationality and I read a bunch of those. Um, I got his audio, well, there's an audiobook series, I guess, of his blog posts that some other company did. I listened to those while walking around the lake in my town, tried to mull those around in my head, had to listen to them many times because it is pretty complex stuff to think about. It doesn't, it's not stuff that really plants itself and becomes immediately useful upon first listen. It kind of, requires multiple listens and and some time to mull it over and really kind of mold your brain around these new concepts because they're not easily graspable, like I said. But that's where I got to the point of writing this article and sort of being able to express things that I've learned. But um, after learning all this stuff, I realized that a lot of the beliefs I held in high school and as a younger person and heard from other people in my life really did focus on black and white binary thinking. You know, you must take this side or this side and who cares about the complex underlying assumptions each side stands upon. So now what I try to do whenever I'm forming a belief is I try to think about, you know, what, what are the precise underpinnings of this belief? What, what actually am I believing in? Am I believing in just a label without much of a knowledge of what's behind that label? Or am I really clear on what that means in terms of, you know, all the details? You know, there's this concept of reductionism where you think of, like, say, maybe a plane, you know, the plane is made of quarks and atoms. And you don't think about that. You think of a model. If you think of a model of a plane, you get the, the you know, the wings and the, the body of it. I don't really know plane terms. So there is a use in thinking of things in, in higher level terms, reductionist terms, but not always in 
when you know this, when you think about it, you can start to look into the beliefs you already have held and question those underlying assumptions, question whether you know the details. One thing that I read in the final chapters of uh, rational, Methods of Rationality, and this isn't a spoiler, but um, there's, there's one thought that Harry has where he, he finally realizes, like, I've made a decision in the past, you know, maybe a few months ago, and I never went back and questioned that decision. I just considered it a prior decision I'd made, and I've kind of gone along that path since then and never questioned it. And that's something that I think about a lot in my own life. What decisions did I make maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago or five years ago that I'm still operating on, even though I wasn't at a, you know, I I wasn't able to think about things in as detailed terms as clearly as I am now. So I need to go back and look at these things and honestly just be able to change my mind. I think if there's anything of immediate use um, of most visible use I've gotten from this entire journey of reading these things. It's um, a more readiness and willingness to change my mind and change my beliefs around. Uh, once new evidence is, is presented, I'm less susceptible to dogma. And I think that's incredibly useful. It makes you, I guess it makes you a more accurate thinker about the world. It makes your values more aligned with where they you know should be. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> I think that's a, that's a pretty good stopping point for this episode. I'm going to start rambling more than I already have. So if you got something out of this episode, that's awesome. Hopefully you did. I really hope you did. The uh, The normal interviews will be back next week. So don't worry, they're not going away. But I do like doing these solo episodes every once in a while. And honestly, this is my show. So I guess I can do whatever I want with it, right? <laughs> I, I do. I do heavily value consistency and and sort of building a habit in my listeners where they can expect to get something of value in a certain form every week. But eventually, or sometimes, you know, occasionally, you've got to mix things up and surprise people. So here's your surprise. Hopefully you found it useful. And if you have questions about it or you want to tell me that I'm an idiot for some reason, then thomas at collegeinfogeek.com is where you can uh, submit your grievances. Anyway, cidpodcast.com is where you'll find the episode 57 link to get the show notes. I'll link to the article I wrote. I'll link to some of the writings over on Less Wrong, where I started learning about rationality, maybe some of the books I'm reading, and also to Methods of Rationality in case you want to go down that rabbit hole. So yes, if you enjoy this show and you want to see it grow, then all you got to do is head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review. That always helps. It really bumps the show up the charts and makes me a happy podcaster. So if you feel like doing that, Go ahead. And if not, that's totally cool. I love providing this show for free anyway. So hopefully you enjoyed this week's episode and I will see you next Monday. Stay cute. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek Podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.